Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight. people back from a much needed vacation um we back y'all me jason neo today we have a special guest miss adrian farley and back in blackity black still how y'all doing today we good how are you here good you said you're here neo mm-hmm. you've been fighting that good fight in tulsa trying to keep trying to keep cold <laughs> We did a good job of it, too. Yeah. Tell us tell us a little bit about what went down. Yeah. So y'all know Trump was planning on coming here and trying to um, throw his rally on Juneteenth out of all days he could have picked. Um, and I think it says something like this. This man is so uneducated that he doesn't even know the day that Juneteenth falls on. And it also speaks to the education, right. his, um, the awareness of his administration, um, about having Juneteenth as his opening rally date, knowing that African-Americans across the country think that this man is extremely um, racially divisive and even racist. Um, but yeah, we were able to uh, throw together a Juneteenth celebration within seven days' notice. It was literally seven days. Let me tell you, last that week was probably the hardest I've ever worked in my entire life. We had no um, hmm. no violence whatsoever. Hmm. Trump's rally, I think they had like 6,200 people, according to the local uh, fire chief okay. uh, at his rally. And we definitely had probably at least 10,000 people attend our Juneteenth Festival. That's great. I just, so, I just want to say I was one of those people that signed up to um, attend Trump's rally just to block off seats. <laughs> so it's not a big Trump won. Trump won about to do it. I know that's right. <laughs> My own. Yeah. Um, so, all right, y'all, let's kick it off. A lot has happened over the past um, week or so since we took a break. We we didn't have to get a chance to have a Juneteenth conversation, but, you know, obviously Juneteenth was big around the country. I myself participated in a huge march here in Chicago that was hosted by my girl, Ashley Munson, who was on a couple of weeks ago. And I gave a pretty electrifying speech. I was proud of myself for that. Um, did a community event. Jason, I know you've probably been in Atlanta working. Um, same thing with you, Adrian. So, you know, and then y'all see my background. We didn't get a chance to even cover Pride Month, but um, we repping, you know, uh, for all Black lives, um, LGBTQ also, because sometimes those get lost in the mix in conversation. So we still go rep and we still working for all Black lives. Um, so today, y'all, we're talking about... Um, mental instability and mental health in the black community and dealing with police brutality, because this is still a a very important conversation. We're having a lot of conversations around defunding police, um, particularly in schools. And I know specifically here in Chicago, our mayor said, no, our school board struck it down. So we want to jump into that conversation. um, And I want to pose a question to y'all back. How do we deal with mental instability when we're dealing with police brutality? 
Awesome. Um, so I'll jump in first. Um, you know, Farley and I both are educators in the Department of Special Education, um, serving, you know, brilliant minds in Clayton County uh, and throughout Metro Atlanta. And one of the things that I would definitely say is so um, disheartening is that one, our governor would even, you know, be supporting elected officials and pushing for education budgets to be cut. Um, we all know too well that the nation is still in a crisis for teachers. Um, there are so many biased policies that are pushing veteran teachers and those teachers that really had a heart of all students uh, in mind out of classrooms. Um, moreover, we don't even have the support. And I, I'm, it's, I'm laughing only because it's just so baffling to me how we don't have support in special education as it is. We don't have enough black male or male educators of color who are counselors. We don't have enough social workers. The social workers that we have are already overworked. Um, we don't even invest in family engagement the way that we should. And so when we think about mental health and all of the things that have happened between January to now of this year, and then we're sending some students are going back to school as normal. Some kids are still in virtual learning where they haven't seen their classmates. They haven't had an outlet. They haven't been able to interact with their teachers or with people that support them. And so, you know, it's very disheartening. Also on one end to see parents that are like, yes, let's just go ahead and get them back in school. And then on the other end, it's like, you have educational leaders that are not even asking the questions about social emotional learning. And so that should be alarming to everyone. I think that we're looking at the need for our students to be safe and healthy, which is very important, but mental health also gets lost in that conversation, especially in the black community. So I just wanted to kick us off with that, um, you know, laying some groundwork in regards to the real struggles that have been happening in public schools and virtual learning is not making that go away. It didn't just poof, it's gone because, oh, we're doing a new model or a hybrid learning. You still have biased policies that still, you know, push out students of color. That didn't go away. So it's not going to be improved with virtual or hybrid, you know, models for learning that are getting ready to start literally in one month. And some schools haven't even made a decision on how they're going to roll this out. But let me let me ask y'all this real quick um, and tying the the conversation around defunding police and everything that we're seeing happen happening now, because and just recently in the case and y'all forgive me, I'm, I know we we are in the age we have to say our brothers and sisters names, but my, my memory is so bad. So with the recent case with the young brother that, you know, that was murdered in Aurora, Colorado, and his case is being reopened or their pushes for his case to be reopened, like our young people are seeing these things happen. They, they're seeing these murders happening in media. And so when we talk about defunding police and we're talking about reopening schools, our young people are going back to school in the fall traumatized by these murders that they're seeing. So how can we support them or how do we push these conversations around, even if it's not defunding police, but de-escalation to the point where it doesn't, it doesn't harm Black kids mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, because they're already scarred from what they're seeing now now, and what they'll see in the future, honestly. Um, well, I, I want to jump in on that one. Uh, well, first of all, we have to always find what the root cause of mental 
um, disabilities come from. Because when you come from an unstable home or you come from an unstable environment, that creates a lot of dissension in your mind. And when you don't have the foundation of God and who he is to you in your life and, and being able to have the values to be able to proceed forward to keep your mind stable, then you find yourself in dissension mentally and emotionally. And so when you started adding on police brutality, systemic racism um, in, the, in, in the justice system, in the school system, all these different things. And then I'm dealing with the mind of my environment at home for a child is very, very concerning because children are, children should not have to hold that cross at such an early age. You know what I'm saying? And so in and, and you made a very good point of traumatized by that. Because when you look at George Floyd, my daughter, she's nine. She saw the whole video. I was trying to shy her from that because number one, she already deals with ADHD and anxiety. So I was trying to shield her from that. But because she has TikTok with her friends, they got YouTube, all these different Instagram, all these different social outlets, she was able to see it. Now, surprisingly, she came and told me, Ma, I watched the video and she was like, it was horrible. How can they do something like this? So when you have children across this globe that's watching our Black men dying on camera, it is traumatizing. And I don't think we have really come up with a goal plan of social emotional how to deal with that. Because now we're trying to deal with, don't be afraid of the police. Because if you're in danger, you know, you should not feel like, oh my God, because I'm scared I'm gonna get shot or my mama gonna get shot, I can't call 911. So now we're in a very sticky place between police, safety, and mental health, you know, and, and so it's so concerning in terms of what can we do? I think we need to develop more social emotional programs, even within the school when school starts to allow kids to be able to share those types of things and be open and be okay without judgment. Because I'm telling you, I've heard my daughter's friends have said, oh my God, who's going to get shot next? And when you talked about Rayshard Brooks in the beginning, you know, that was on TV. It was two back shots from the cop. So, you know, and then another car got shot in the parking lot of the Wendy's. So we got to somehow come together, not only in education, but we got to come together and deal with the mentality of what our children are seeing. Help bring understanding. Stop sweeping it under the rug. Stop saying, well, it's just something on TV, baby. Don't worry about it. You ain't never got to worry about that. Yes, you do. Because your child can be walking down the street, black or brown, and the cop decide, a white cop decides, oh, well, I'm going to pull you over because you walking in the middle of the street. Mm -hmm. So I think that once we can come to the foundation, we have to build the foundation first. First, we have to build the foundation of who we are, whose we are, which is our Heavenly Father, and then education and how to move forward. So that's how I kind of see that we can move on, you know, in terms of mental um helping the mental health um, environment. Yeah. Neo, you, you on mute early. I saw you about to jump in. Yeah, um, but I'm so happy that I was on mute because everything that sister just said here is spot on. 
I'm like, I'm so sorry that your kid actually saw that. I just, it's mm-hmm. ridiculous. A nine-year-old is is internalizing, you know, mm-hmm. generational trauma, generational mm-hmm. racial trauma. Mm-hmm. And so you just mentioned about, you know, kids getting pulled over or, or, or getting uh, assaulted by police officers in the middle of the street. Well, that happened here in our city not too long ago. I think it was mm-hmm. just before Juneteenth in Tulsa. We had two boys that made yep. national news. Um, and I mean, my community is still outraged over that situation. The police officer is still working because we have a fraternal order of police uh, union that is just stronger than any teacher union in this country, mm-hmm. stronger than any one of them. And so I absolutely think I, at this point in time, because we do have the power, because we're the people, we must defund police departments. And mm-hmm. I'm not anti-police. It doesn't make me anti-police to say that. I'm just saying that we need to reallocate the funding mm-hmm. that, we're, that we're putting to 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 buy uh, world uh, to buy military weapons mm-hmm. for the police department when they don't need that. Yeah, like we need to be investing in social emotional. Um, you know, Absolutely. technique for these babies so they can be able to deal with this with this trauma. Yeah. And you know here in Georgia, I'm sorry, Tanisha, but you know here mm-hmm. in Georgia, and I know um JB knows this, they're cutting nine hundred and fifty million dollars mm-hmm. of educational funds hmm. out of our budget. So that means that probably if it's nine hundred and fifty million, about six hundred million of it, if you just you know, if you allocated that out across all the counties in Georgia, we're going into furloughs. You know, That's we're right. going into furloughs. We're going into no resources. We're going into all these different things that is just going to create so much more systemic failure in the education system. Right. Now, um, and I'm not trying to shift it, but to your point, Nehemiah, it's like, how can you be outraged by one thing, but you can't be outraged about the whole thing when it in turns talk about our education for the kids? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know? well, I, I wanted to get back like to the reason why. Can you hold on one second? Go so ahead. Go ahead, Neil. Everything that you're saying is the reason why all these damn black people are out in the damn streets. Right. <laughs> like it's not just one thing. Like we're literally protesting the entire system. System. It's everything. And mm-hmm. to get back to Tanisha's point about how to defund the police and why this is important, you know, those stats are not just in Georgia. They're happening in states across mm-hmm. the nation. And so mm-hmm. when we're saying defund the police, we have to look at, well, where are the actual funds going to? And this is what Absolutely. pissed me off with our Atlanta City Council. I was, you know, posting about this. I'm like, constituents, hundreds. There was four hours in a meeting. And I think, um, Farley, you may have been in one of the meetings. We were on there and people were saying the same things like, we need to invest the money in community development. We need mm-hmm. to invest the money in schools. We need to invest the money in higher education. And mm-hmm. then they came and they said no. And then they gave additional money to police programs in that department. And people are looking at how when these budgets are cut in education, we're not looking at early learning, right? Which is our pre-K program. And this is how Absolutely. kids start off. And it's already underfunded. So now we're cutting funds there to give more funds to the police officers and police departments. But we're also cutting funds to after school programs that we know Trump and his administration did not want to fund or support. People are not thinking about that when we're saying reopening schools. We're also not thinking about remediation programs and mentoring programs that help drive 
social emotional learning. So not only are we furloughing teachers and support staff, we're cutting the programs that will help heal our children. So in a sense, we all should be out here doing something, whether it's signing a petition, we're marching, we're calling these offices where the school board members are and state superintendents and saying enough is enough because we're putting our children in harm's way. And so that is why people are saying to Tanisha's question, defund the police, why we want counselors in schools versus cops, because if any teacher is mm -hmm. really honest, Atlanta Public Schools, Clayton County, Gwinnett, yeah, it's not all police officers, but we don't have a system that holds these cops accountable and we don't know their track records because we have all seen our students slammed in the hallways. Mm -hmm. We've all seen them pushed up against the wall. We've mm -hmm. all seen, you know, their heads busted open to the white meat, but we don't say nothing because we want to keep those contracts and we want to keep our jobs. So I just want to be real about that. The violence is happening in our communities, but it's been happening in our schools with these police officers. Mm. Now, let me let me jump in because, um, and I did want to connect the conversation of defunding police to the reallocation of funds um, to support our students in schools. Now, I think, you know, what I want to emphasize in this conversation is when people talking about defunding police, the clarification around what they actually mean, because to be completely honest, I don't think police need to be completely removed from schools because, I mean, we got... We got disgruntled ass white kids shooting shit up, you know, when they feel like when they when they mother won't share their pills or something. I don't know. No shade. But, you know, we got we got these mad ass kids shooting up schools and shit. So when that happens, you know, we need some kind. We need police in schools. We don't need no scared ass security guards like in the case of Florida when the security guard ran off. So, um, you know, I think it's I think it's important to be clear on what we talk about when we when we discussing the conversation or discussing the funding police and to what extent, but I think overall, we need to definitely have a greater conversation around accountability. You know, mm -hmm. because we've had conversations around accountability and education and accountability means the equitable allocation of funds to high need schools, mm -hmm. you know, to support again, social and social, emotional and mental health, but also mm -hmm. accountability on the police side so that just the same as teachers unions protect terrible teachers, um, police unions protect those terrible ass police officers and those are the police officers that sometimes land in our schools you know and so how do we build that accountability on both sides so again we can have the safety and security that we need in schools but also have that support structure in place for our students to feel emotionally and um, socially socially well that's good yeah, so that's I think one of the things that we got to do most definitely is we have to we have to we have to put laws in place that keep uh, police unions from being so powerful, because mm. in Oklahoma the police the the fraternal police they'll they'll show up to the Capitol and push a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of policy through the, mm -hmm. the state legislator and we don't even know we don't even like mm -hmm. realize that this stuff in in like a day because they're they're mm -hmm. that organized and they're that powerful like we gotta think about like police unions. In the United States, like they got, they started becoming organized in 1915, and they have lobbyists. Nine, and they have lobbyists, so they've been they've been doing their bidding since 1915. Like we just came, like we just kind of halfway got free in 1960. You know what I mean? And, and, and now we're like, okay, well, we just gonna disrupt every damn thing at this point because we're just so far behind trying to catch up to the policies that they're in, they're, that they're impl implementing. 
um, that are like keeping us from, um, you know, not having to experience uh, uh, police brutality or modern day lynchings, if you want to call it that. Yeah. So I think that's yes. the first we we need to we need to do something about the, the fraternal order of police and how they lobby. Even with the police officers in schools, and I, you know, I'm looking at a comment that they should be on the um, educational resource team and helping build relationships with students. And we get that, you know, I've been on those committees. They've been in the room. They've, you know, been talking a good game. But the reality is, they know that they can do what they want to do because they're protected, you know, by these unions. I had mentioned the HBO docu series on the Atlanta murdered and missing children. And mm. at the very end of the docu-series, because a lot of people did not watch it, which they should, um, a lot of people are not reading the articles that, you know, the Black Wall Street Times, Atlanta, um, I have my own personal blog that I'm putting out information for various counties, you know, around Georgia. People are not reading and they're not watching things outside of the news. And mm. so here's the reality, the police union that we have just spoke about, they were heavily involved in the Atlanta missing and murder children. Mm -hmm. They supported that. They mm -hmm. paid for that. They made sure the funding was there to cover it up so that those families never received justice. They are the same entities that are pushing for police who don't have the mindset of protecting children. They are pushing them in school because we do not acknowledge that the school to prison pipeline is real. It is a part of the quote unquote new slavery. That's why all of these policies that are being developed by school board members, whether they don't look like us or they are black and bought, they are pushing these things because it's money behind that. Where do they get the data? They get the data from these testing companies that, again, are giving them these backdoor funds for supporting them. And they're using this data to say, oh, well, little black boys, by the time they get in third grade, are already going to be ready for the juvenile justice system, then these little black girls and girls of color who, you know, come from these households, they're more prone to be in prostitution or in strip clubs. So we need to go ahead and make sure that these policies are in place to get them out for attendance and dress code. And so we can sit on committees all day long, but if we're not changing the legislation, if we're not holding our state superintendent, again, we got to go back through the process because we're in the system that was already developed. If these people have been advocating since 1915, our ancestors were dying for it. We shouldn't have to be dying for it today. We should be able to lift our voices, get on these computers and send our emails, call these offices, and more importantly, support the people that are doing the work to make change. And that is how we're going to defund the police so these resources go to the very places that we need, the very areas that we need to protect and support our children. But look, let me let me ask y'all this, because I'm not so much a believer in policy as I am a believer in practice. Because the state of Illinois has had a policy on the books for years that says that all schools are supposed to teach black history and it's not happening. You know, and so it's like we can talk about policy implementation, you know, for days and they can put policy on the books. But how do we make sure they practice what they preach? You know, um, disruption. Well, um, <laughs> um, my thing is, this, like here in Georgia. They're not teaching black history, you know? I mean, even if in the month of February, when I was coming up in school, you know, back in the day, 
I, because I'm 40. I'll be 41 in September. So when I was back in school, we learned about a little bit of black history, but it was just enough to say, okay, you know about Dr. King, you know about Rosa Parks, you know, uh, but right. we didn't learn about John Lewis. We didn't talk about Ralph David Abernathy. You know, we didn't talk about C.T. Vivian. We definitely didn't talk about Juneteenth. You know, we didn't talk about those different things. We didn't talk about the, mass, the Tulsa massacre. We didn't talk about those things. We just talked about just enough of them to say, we did it. it. Right. So what you have to do is now we have to get the people to knock the door down because policies are important and practice is important because right. if you have a foundation in place, now you have to learn how to enforce the, the practice of the policy because right. if you are told illegally that we're supposed to learn black history our black history should not be tainted it should not be watered down you should give the liberty of the teachers to be able to find and teach important issues important events that happen in the lives what people don't and see i can go on a soapbox with this oh, about wait wait, wait 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 before you go on your soapbox <laughs> so, how, so going back how do we encourage and enforce practice how you have to hold have people to get, accountable. Have to get the, you have to get your parents, stakeholders. You have to get your students. You got to, I mean, you got to gather your people up. And like Jason said, you got to knock on these doors and say, hey, my child is not learning this. This is important. You got, it, it, you got to start reconstructing policies because the policy may be as just teach black history. Mm-hmm. You know, no details. It, it, it is no details. It doesn't. It doesn't re- lay out what exactly what could be put in the curriculum. Is just teach black history. No, when no, everywhere it comes, teach yeah. black history. You've done it. Policies need to that include accountability structure. measures, and that's yeah. what lacks. You know, being a former board chair of a charter school, we spent two years reforming policies because the policies didn't align to what the school leaders were saying, Uh what was needed, which is accountability. They are so cut and dry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another good point is, again, schools don't invest in family engagement. So how are we engaging families and communities? I have seen, you know, parents and parent leaders who have been advocates for years and they've been demonized. In Atlanta Uh in particular, we have demonized the word advocate and activist. And these are the people that have been saying, no, you are jumping all over the teacher, but the teacher has been trying to teach, but the principal has said, nope, we need to be focusing on the test, not what's happening in the community. And the principal is saying that because their district lead and the superintendent is saying, no, we don't want to test that because they're thinking about dollars and cents. They're thinking about the organizations that are supporting and funding their salaries. So they're going to do what the people that are funding them say do. And if we're not holding them accountable, if we're mm-hmm. not, just like we're doing with the Atlanta City Council right now, with our own, one of our representatives, Cleto, Cleto Winslow, I love her to death. However, we need to go ahead and pull out that sheet. Who are your funders? This is my little black book right here. Who are your funders? And then I can list it. Oh, you have this foundation that's supporting you. And that's why your vote changed from yes to no, because they don't support refund, uh, reforming the police department. They want that police department to be there because they know that they get paid off of chaos. And so when we start calling out injustice, when we start calling people for who they are, then they may change their colors. They may change their tune, but too many people know that white, black, 
mixed race. It doesn't care. Anybody can be bought and sold. I don't care how black you are. There are a lot of black people in these schools that are holding back our people because they got a good penny coming in and they want that check to keep coming in. So we'll sell out our own people for a good check and we won't hold them accountable. So it goes back to accountability. Accountability will drive change. So I wanted to go back to to what what, um, Adrena said and one of the things like, so you had mentioned about the teaching of black history. So last year I worked as a, con- a, a testing consultant at the school that I used to uh, work at full time. Um, and I just really, it really start, started thinking about the, the state tests that we take. And so we test in, you know, we test ELA, English language arts, and we test math at certain, uh, certain grade levels. And at certain grade levels, uh, they'll take an AP history test or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so what I really think that needs to happen, just so Black people can get justice in every way possible, including academic, academically, I really do think that there needs to be some sort of like, um, there has to be, we have to test the entire population on um, not just the Dr. Kings and not just the Rosa Parks, but I think it should be a mandatory standardized testing uh, on black history for Mm -hmm. all students. And the reason why I think that is because if we're, if we're really trying to eliminate the racist culture that began in 1619 and hasn't even been challenged academically at all, it's going to start in the schools. So we have to literally make it mandatory. And the only way to do that is to make it mandatory on a state test. Black history section A of history. I don't know. Right. Something like that. We've been adopting no, these no. curriculums. We Hold don't on. have culturally inclusive curriculums in school. Let me ask this question, though. Let me ask this question. And um, all of you guys are educators, so I kind of want to get how y'all feel about this. When we talk about, I've heard a lot of teachers talk about they feel pressured to teach to test, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, so to Neo, to your point, if it's not about, it's not necessarily about the retention of information, but only kind of the short-term retention of information so that students can be successful in testing so that schools can, you know, show these, these benchmarks, that these benchmarks are being hit. Is that, um, does not, I mean, it absolutely makes sense that all students should be taught Black history and taught Black history thoroughly. But when we're talking about in an age where testing is, the the gold standard of student success will that be a successful curriculum in school if students are taught to retain their information for the purposes of testing and not knowledge no the current curriculums don't include that and the reason why i say no is number one i teach again like jason said i teach special ed i teach elementary k through five and so when you look at the curriculum within itself it's it's not even fit for regular learners because every child learns differently and so when you look at when you look at the the whole environment of a classroom let's start off with a general education classroom I can almost guarantee you that it's a child in there that probably is on their way through an RTI process or get ready to come see me 
eventually mm-hmm. because they're processing is different. They don't know how to read. They can't comprehend. So with the curriculum that is out, which is the core curriculum, it is not designed to really set the kids up for success to pass these tests. Because when you look at general ed teachers, they have to teach so much in a week. Okay, y'all, you got to do this in a week. Okay, if they don't learn it, move on. And it's like, how unfair is that to the child? So then we have frustration and behaviors developing in the classroom because number one, they couldn't catch the first skill. Now you put me on another skill that I couldn't even catch on the first skill. So none of this stuff is set up for success, especially for black kids. And so when you go, now let me go to special ed kids. They, you have kids that have autism. You have kids with ADHD. You have, they have um, learning disabilities. They EBD, emotional behavior. Yeah, extreme emotional behavior disorder. Extreme. And you got all these different entities going on. And you got fifth graders on a second grade reading level that is struggling to even yeah. comprehend on a grade level that they can't even get on, but you want them to take the GMAS test and say, go be successful. I tried to teach you and it's not being taught, but it's an unfair setup for teachers as well because they don't necessarily have the liberty to say, okay, you know what? I need to dial back a little bit because my students are not getting it. Mm-hmm. It's all about pushing it. Pushing yeah. it. And then when it comes to the end of the term, now we're passing these kids along. So now we got high schoolers, we got 9, 10, 11, 12 graders that's still on the third grade level or mm-hmm. on the fifth grade level. And then we under then we try to understand like why they in the street, why they drop out of school, why they don't want to get educated, why they don't understand the history of who we are, because right. the system has set them up for failure. Right. That's true. And I just I just wanted to um, you know, I always gotta play devil's advocate and kind of, you know, challenge because I'm starting to become less, I'm becoming less and less fond of testing because again, that's how mm-hmm. achievement gaps are created, which are, you know, yes. actually opportunity gaps. So we, like, absolutely, we got to teach our kids, but not teach our kids to the test. But to bring it back absolutely. to what we were talking about around, you know, the school to prison pipeline and defunding police, um, Adrian, going back to your point where you were talking about, you know, these kids are being taught to pass these exams, but they're not actually learning anything. And so by the time they get to high school, they can't read, they can't do math. They don't have the skills they need to be, you know, successful adults. And so they, you know, they feel discouraged and they dropped out or they drop out or they're getting suspended and they're being classified as special ed students. All of this contributing to the school to prison pipeline, all of this conditioning our kids to think that they are inadequate and incapable and all these things. And then they have the police in schools to reinforce this notion to keep these black kids in place. Like stay in place, little black girl, little black boy. And if you don't, I'm going to put you back in your place. Right. It goes back to that conversation around how do we, again, how do we structure or enforce accountability? And I want to jump to how we can, as a community, possibly build relationships because I mean realistically they not go they not trying to defund police they not some states have or some cities have but as a whole the country is not about that life and so in the meantime how do we as a community try to build relationships with officers so that we can enforce that accountability or encourage that accountability in some way so we can minimize some of these instances of brutality on the streets and in our schools so I, I think it starts with, but Neo, you go first and then I chime so, in. 
So I don't necessarily, and, and, and just to, to go ahead and- I know you're coming back. <laughs> and clap back, because I do have to come back and clap back. That. And so I was thinking about the white kids. I wasn't even really thinking about our kids. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if we don't learn, if we learn about Black history, I mean, usually we, it starts at home. Right. A lot of, now, not all Black parents are at that level of consciousness and, and feel the need to do so. Um, but, I mean, black, white kids, they need to learn Black, black history. You know, perhaps, uh, you know, John doesn't grow up to shoot, you know, off, to shoot Brooks in the back a bunch of times. Or, mm-hmm. you know, the other officer to put, put, feel the need to put his knee on some Black person's neck if he gets the truth unsugarcoated version of black history in school and is made to take a test so he does so he can be a little less racist um but as far as like the police situation Mm -hmm. i i I mean everything to me like i i don't think that the police officers are necessarily i don't think that they're bad i think that it's the system itself that pro that protects the bad police officers Mm -hmm. the ones that slam the (laughs) seven-year-old girls and 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 traumatizes them, telling them, well, we, I got to arrest you. Like the little black girl that was in Florida, we got to take you to jail. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and, and then the union is what protects the officer. Like in our city in Tulsa, the police officers that assaulted those little boys can't be fired, not from the mayor, not from the, uh, not even from the, the chief of police, but somehow there's, there's like a whole bunch of like I don't even know what to call it, but the the FOP is so powerful that they can't just fire these fire these two police officers or this officer named Travis Yates who keeps you know he sounds like a mini Trump mm. and he can't be fired because of the FOP. Yeah, I think we need to also look at you know again going back to what Tanisha was asking some of the solutions and so I think solutions start with knowledge. Knowledge is power. How do we even dismantle these systems to begin with? The first thing is we have too many African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, those who are biracial that have doctorate degrees that have developed curriculums. So here's my call to action. We need to hold these black, brown, mixed race, whoever you are on these school boards accountable. Why are we not adopting culturally inclusive curriculums? Why are we not requiring the background history of these SROs or cops or police officers that are coming into schools to see what is their history? Why were they leaving their police department? Did they shoot somebody that was a person of color and now they want to come into a school and police and terrorize children? So we have to do better background checks and hold our HR departments accountable because a lot of these HR departments are housed with white women, and this is no slight to any race, but they are. We know this as a fact. You can go to Douglas County right now, and those same white women that were working in the HR department in the 70s and 80s are still there, and their husbands are in positions of power to say, oh, yeah, we need to have more police in those schools because I need to make sure that y'all are safe, and we need to control those black and brown children. So it starts with looking at the people that are hiring these officers, how we're holding them accountable, informing parents of what they need to know. When they get in these board meetings, they need to ask, how did you vote? If you voted for these police officers, why would you vote for more police officers and then cut social workers and then cut counselors and then cut um, parent liaisons that we need to help bridge the gap so that we can successfully continue learning at home? 
so that we can make sure that these children that are in lower income communities or middle class communities or in higher, you know, elite communities where they're experienced domestic violence. Because if you look at the research of these white children that come in our schools and want to shoot it up, it's because they privileged and they mom and daddy fussing and fighting and they done seen their daddy pick up a gun and shoot and seen their daddy pick up a pan and hit their mama. So they feel like, oh, well, let me come to school and demonstrate my frustration in the mm-hmm. same way. So Wait we have to look at that. I wanted to jump back into Tanisha. When you ask, how do you build the relationship back? Number mm-hmm. one, because well, the trust we, has been we so dismantled in the community between police and people. Right. First of all, we just need the we need the police to. I believe that if officers and the community can come together and listen to one another, not bicker over Damn who's man. right and who's wrong, <laughs> but police officers understand the community is feeling and be able to take that back into their trainings, take that back into their professional developments to understand They're that because it. even with Elijah McCain, he, he had a mental, I think he had like a, I think he was autistic if, I, if I'm correct, or he had some type of mental uh, disability. And so when the cop came and approached him, he was like, stop, stop. It's all on the body cam. And it was like, okay, you, you couldn't even ration out that something may have been wrong with him. And so because you're so full of authority and power and because you feel like, oh, you're not going to do what I'm going to say, I'm going to slam you to the ground. And it was just so much, it was just so much disarray in that yeah. whole event that took place. So if police officers need to understand too, there are people with mental health issues. And when you approach them, you need to say, okay, I see something might be slightly off with them. Let me call my captain and say, I might need a social worker to come who knows how to de-escalate that person. Because when you deal with an autistic baby, I'm telling you now, I have one in my class. The least little trigger, he'll just start throwing chairs. He'll start running. fighting. He'll start scre- right, running, screaming. And then it's like, but if you yell at him back, you're enraging him more. He's getting more enraged. So when cops do not understand that piece of somebody may be on the edge that day that you're stopping me, and instead of approaching the situation in a, in a, in a humble way, I think that's where we need to sit down and talk. And because if yeah. not, we're never going to build a relationship to Tanisha, to your question, Tanisha, we're never going to build a relationship with the police because until we can sit down and have a educated conversation to say, look, this is what we feel in the community. We should not be scared of you. And then we need to tell white officers, black officers, whoever, you shouldn't be scared of us. We did. We rely on you to protect us. Right. So, it's about listening to one each other. I hear too much bickering. I'm right. I got power. You don't have power. I, it's just too much. So we have to come to the place of communication and listening. That's why God gave us two ears, one mouth. We can listen in your right ear and your left ear and be able to understand. Um, he also gave us free will. And I think that people are willingly choosing not to Listen, you know, I think when we having this conversation, Tanisha, Neo, you know, and Farley, we, you know, understand what it means when people are saying defund the police. 
we know that we need security in schools. Mm -hmm. We get that. We're not saying take that away. And I think that, you know, it goes back to the position of people not really understanding and doing the research behind what these movements are calling for. For example, in Atlanta and really throughout Metro Atlanta, we have POW, Police Athletic League, and they are trained in social emotional learning. But mm-hmm. they're cutting their funding because they know that they're effective. They connect to the after-school programs. They are the ones that help do the ride-alongs and community cleanup days. And they are there doing the work with us. I want to not make it seem as if we are demonizing police because a lot of people take defunding police as that. No, we know that there are good cops out here that are doing the right thing, but they're not listening to them either. They don't want to listen. They want to do things in the way that they have been done because when you minimize chaos in communities and you can truly develop, then people will realize that why are we paying these people in high places all this money when Mm -hmm. we really need to be redirecting this money to go to other places. For example, when we look at books, even though people are saying that they're taking books out of schools, no, books are still present. Even if they're online, again, I'm still pushing the narrative that we need to adopt culturally sensitive and inclusive curriculums that are developed by people of color. We need to partner with organizations like the Center for Black Educators, Profound Gentlemen, other organizations that are helping public schools retain, recruit, train, not just educators of color, but also our counterparts. Because how are you going to teach anything Black history when you come from a family of people who did not believe in that? So we have to be realistic about what we can do, what we can't do, where we need to start, what are the driving points. We're having the conversations. People have been advocating. We've been telling people for years that this is coming. We need change. We need to do this. But again, we have to be willing to hold people accountable. I don't care how Black you are, and I'm going to keep saying this, there are black people in on school boards, in principalships, in assistant principalships, in leadership positions that are not doing the right thing by our children because they know that the data shows that if you got the high test scores, if you have kids that are not causing disruption and you can get them out of the school, then that's where those bonuses come from. It's about dollars and cents. And we need to get them with low integrity out of these positions and uphold people that really want to see true justice for everyone. So it doesn't have to be a conversation centered on blackness. It could be a true conversation centered on equity. Because again, we can't talk about equity for everyone. Hell, the white kids got it. They're getting what they need. We need to get it for the kids who need it. Mm-hmm. Well, equity, equity wouldn't, I, I got a couple of like, because y'all said a couple of things, because equity, equity wouldn't even exist if, you know, there wasn't an imbalance of resource right. distribution. So that's number one. Um, damn. So, Neo, so going back to the teaching of Black history in schools, right? So I want to connect that to what Adrian said around how police officers tend to approach Black people. And so that is, I think that teaching of black history is key because again, white people sometimes or most times grow up with the notion that black people are dangerous. They've either seen it in media or they've learned, they've learned it in their households. And so that goes with them through adulthood. And that's when you get police that when they approach black people on the street, it's like, it's, they go kill, it's gonna be either me or him. You know, so that's number one. So that ties to the unlearning piece. Unlearning that racism that, has cultivated these mindsets of black people are dangerous and has instilled fear in black people of police. Because I think one of the things, and I've been careful, I'm, I'm, I try to be real careful not to generalize entire groups. 
And so when we talk about police brutality, um, you know, I know particularly I haven't, I've, I've had interactions with police lately, specifically a lot of black police and one um, this past Saturday in the event that I hosted and he has a mentoring program. And he was talking about how the black police officers in Chicago held a demonstration against the FOP and it didn't get any coverage. You know, and so he was saying how he has a black media is important. Right. You know, so he has a mentoring program, a couple of them. He tries to work with youth. And at the end of the day, when he takes that uniform off, he's still a black man who, when he takes that uniform off at the police station and he goes home, he's still he's still been pulled over. You know, so we got to keep in mind that there are black officers that, you know, still are black and are here, you know, supporting our communities, specifically supporting our youth. And so when I always talk about how important it is to have those conversations, that's one piece in having that conversation with that officer, because if we never take advantage of those opportunities, then we won't know that they are good officers in the world, particularly black officers. But yeah, overall, like the education in itself, abolitionist teaching is important because when you talk about curricula, I've heard of so many people trying to get diverse, diversified curricula in schools and school districts push them away with all they might. And so it's like, realistically, I don't think it's going to ever happen because they don't want to teach freedom. They don't want abolitionist teaching in, in, in public schools, in the tradition of public school system. And so we have to work with what we have now, but also create those programs outside of the district so that our kids are learning what the fuck they need to know. That's good. I mean, at so this that's, point, that's what I, I, that was my two cents. And so like at this point in time, like y'all know the school that I worked at was separate from the school district. Mm-hmm. And the reason why our school was so academically successful was because it was separate and we didn't have to wait for white people to catch up. You yeah, know, like, right. the reason why, like look at Mississippi. Mississippi yesterday, um, voted to abolish the the racist ass symbol that they had in their flag forever. Just ridiculous. Um, but if you look at Baton Rouge, Louisiana, their school board voted five to four to keep the name Robert E. Lee on their damn magnet school. And the vote was divided by race. Mm. So how can we just in situations like that, black people just gonna have to wait on you know these white people to become culturally competent. Ain't nobody got time for that shit. Yep. So depending on where you're at, if you you don't have enough black people to take over that school board member, uh, that school school board, as far as like the other seats so y'all can actually pass stuff without having to, you know, die and wait to the next generation or whatever, like you going, that's how we got to move. We got to move like that. Or we have to completely disrupt the system. And And then then you got to find, and another thing too is like, you have to, and this is a lot of work. This is so much energy involved in, in, in making sure you are completely organized. Even when it comes to disrupting, you got to be organized. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to like, uh, there's tons of white allies out there. You got to find those people that are in those areas. You got to uh, get them to run because they'll know why they need to run. Those white people that are, that those, those it, white board members, that voted for Robert E. Lee to stay, they knew exactly what the hell they were doing and what they were protecting. They were protecting their heritage. Yeah, because it's a part of their heritage. And how do we, you know, dismantle that? Tanisha, I wanted to go to um, one thing in particular in regards to the fight versus flight and how, you know, in a lot of instances, um, a lot of our children that are pulled over by the police, you know, being a special education teacher, um, I know that Rose Calloway is tuned in to, 
um, the show. I wanted to shout her out. She's been an advocate for families and children that have had special needs for many years, um, as well as Shauna Hayes Tavares. And they actually, you know, unknowingly inspired me to, you know, go from administration to teaching special education because it's such an overlooked area. And one of the things I do want to, you know, bring up is that we need to dismantle the stereotypes of special education and mental health within our own communities and our schools, communities, including our households. Because if somebody is looked at as different, then it's like, oh my God, you know, we don't want to invite you to dinner. We don't want to have you. This is how I'm so impactful in reaching my students because I'm dual exceptional. I was gifted and talented. A lot of my classmates that were in the gifted program, we thrived. But a lot of them didn't know that I also had services. For elementary school, I had speech. I stuttered so bad. And my students are shocked when I tell that story because they're like, what? Like, Mr. Allen, you stuttered like me? Like, you had a speech impediment? And I'm like, yeah, I did. But it takes teachers that can understand where children are and where family are, families are to help bridge that gap and meet those needs. And a lot of our students, when they are out in the communities and they're on medicine, and this is the point that I wanted to drive, mm. their sense of fear gets heightened so fast. So imagine how many kids have been diagnosed with ADD and ADHD and extreme emotional behavior disorder, et cetera, and so forth, even autism, and they're on medication and they already know from what Adrian has shared, her nine-year-old old daughter saw the video of one of our fellow citizens getting shot. So imagine what children are feeling when they're just walking to the store, right? We've seen it about the Skittles and popcorn and water, or just simply having a book in your hand and walking. Imagine what these children are feeling when they are pulled over and they're in their mind, it's like, oh my God, and I, I didn't do anything wrong, but now I'm being pulled over as if I've done something wrong. So fight versus flight is really re right. And so in their mind, people are like, well, why would you run from the police? Just let them take you in. And, but when you don't have those things happening inside of your body and your mind, you don't understand that. And so we need to be more patient. We need to be more understanding. If we want to talk about the God conversation, that we need to imply those characteristics, those be attitudes, be kind be understanding, be, you know, open to the fact that everybody doesn't think like you and live like you and grew up the way that you grew up. And a lot of our children are facing these things where when they see the police, the first thing they want to do, my students have told me this. They are like, okay, well, I know I don't want to fight them because I don't have a weapon. So in turn, what do they do? They want to run. They want to flee for their lives. They want to get to mama. They want to get to... They want to get mm. to grandma. They want to get to daddy. They want to get home to somebody that can protect them. And, and, and that's the Sandra Bland let Sandra Bland went into custody and she still ended up there. So it was like, you damned if you do, you damned if you don't. Right. That's the scary part because even with my daughter, well, let me backtrack a little bit. I got stopped by the police, even though I did, I shouldn't have gone around the person, but I went around some people because I was late for work to my school get to my school and the police pulled me over the first thing I did I had my homegirl on the phone I said up oh, I'm recording I need you to stay on the phone with me now it was weird because the officer stood at my back window so I'm sitting this way looking I literally almost had to do like this just to talk to him and so I'm looking like do you want me to turn around to acknowledge you? You know, because, but I kept my friend on the phone and I said, listen, I'm get, 
I know I know my error of my ways and everything else. I shouldn't have gone around the car, but I need you to stay on the phone with me with this police officer because he wasn't black. You know, I don't know if he was Hispanic or he was mixed. I don't know, but I'm like, still stay on the phone. But it's sad that we're at this place that we have to do that because even with my nine-year-old, I told her this, if we ever get stopped, do not move. Because see, she has ADHD. So she all like this, you know, she's all over the place. She moves, that's what they do. In their mind, their mind is going 10 million miles an hour. So they got this thought, this thought, this thought, this thought, this thought. And so I said, hold my hand and do not move. I should not have to tell my child that if I got pulled over, you know, because she's scared that possibly he going to draw a gun on me because I'm black and more my, he going to try to draw one on my daughter because he see her moving, you know, or whatever. But I think the issue is this, is that so long that this stuff has been going on and people are not, and I, and this is what I want to say. Black people have already been woke, but I think they're more woke and it created a nation of people to wake up with them even the more because when George Floyd was on that ground for eight minutes and 34 seconds, it was like when you were watching it as the black people, white people, Hispanic people, everybody was looking at it like, are we really looking at this on TV? Like, it was almost like this is just a made-up TV show. But to know that this man, like Jason said, as a citizen, nobody knew of him, nobody knew anything of him. He moved the nation of people to now, for especially for white people. I don't think all white people are racist. I think some of them have been like, well, you know, I don't want to touch that subject no, because really. I don't want to... I don't want to offend nobody. But now they're like, let's offend people now because this is what this is what it was. And our parents were not right. When you look at the dynamics of children that go to school, um, when you look at the uh, dynamics of kids going to school and everything else, these black kids and these white kids and these Asian kids, they don't care about race. They all commingle with each other. They yeah. do things with each other. It's so white children, so white children started learning. Black people are not that bad right. because my mama said, or my daddy said, or my granddaddy said, I like this dude because he's funny or he cool. So now a lot of the white people are like, wait a minute, my kid, my friends are black and you are killing black men on television. Oh, you know, black lives matter, you yeah. know? So I love seeing the movement of this because it's moving nations. It's starting to change the hearts of people. It's starting to change the mindsets of people. And then it's going to eventually change the mindset of education because in order for you to march, you have to be educated to understand why black lives matter and why a nation has to come together to in order to defund police whether it's to knock down legislation is it to uh, redo policies and practices this is our moment and yeah. we cannot yeah. miss it with ignorance that's okay. good that was a good yeah. closing thought yeah. <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> i was just like that was a good closing thought no. i just had one sentence hold on yeah <laughs> So we go because Neo got to hop on. So Neo, what's your closing thoughts or um, you know, call to action in this in this conversation? Uh, my so my call to action would be to, and this is for the people that are listening out there that are kind of new to activism, is to you know find your local uh, 
organizers and get with them. And if you have resources, you know, give them resources, plug them up with folks that you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that I really, I still think we need to start challenging this police union because it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's way too powerful. They're the ones that are not allowing uh, police officers, whether they're white or black, it doesn't matter. They're, they're the ones that are protecting these bad police officers, even if it is 1% of them. They're the ones that are protecting that 1% of bad uh, police officers that are, that are killing people, that are abusing children at schools. And they have to be, when they do the crime, they have to be made an example of publicly, and we have to hold them accountable for the crimes that they commit against our people. Until that happens, police officers, whether they're white or black, but mostly the white ones, will have that, um, will have the, um, they'll have that uh, feeling that they can just continue to um, hide behind their guns and their badges because the law supposedly says so. Yeah. What you got, Jason? Um, I was just going to say this, guys, for those that are tuned in, thank you so much for just listening to our thoughts and our stories. Um, I'm a storyteller and I love for people to get information. So um, to continue this conversation, I have several different um, petitions that um, organizers in the Metro Atlanta area are putting out to make change. Um, Please visit professorjballen.blogspot.com. I'm actually gonna be making a post on Facebook uh, with some of the articles so that you can be informed. Um, and then also have the resources to help make change. Because one thing I will tell you, just like I teach my students, I can't give you everything. But what I will give you is the knowledge so you can make an informed decision and some action steps to move forward. Um, and also, if you can subscribe to Atlanta.org, um, I'm doing a storytelling series for Profound Gentlemen where we're telling the stories of male educators of color um, in our fight for social justice. And what are some of the experiences of teachers Um, that have gone too often silent and overlooked and not heard. Because again, we have to elevate teachers that are doing this work because we are the least protected and we are standing on the field with parents to help dismantle this system of oppression known as our public education system that has done so much injustice to our children. So I just wanted to throw that out there and highlight that for everyone um, on this podcast. (laughs) Thank you Thank we you got all. Hold on. What'd you say? I said, thank you for having me. This was so good. It, it was so much fun. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you for having me come on. Yeah, thank you for being on. And I, I just want to connect everybody's thought as my final thought. So y'all heard what Adrienne said. She said, now is the time. Yes. We are in the moment, but we cannot lose this momentum. So remember that. And what Neo said, we have to dismantle these systems, not only, not only the FOP, but again, a lot of unions protect people that should not have jobs. So just right. the same as Jake, like teachers don't have protections, some teachers do have protections. They should not be in classrooms. And what Jason said, so we have to, we have to keep this, mo- this momentum going. We have to dismantle these systems. And Jason just gave y'all a whole bunch of steps, petitions, all kind of stuff that y'all can do to dismantle, help dismantle these systems. So there's no reason why anybody should be inactive in protecting all black lives. So with that y'all, we out. This is People's Voice with my homie Neo, Jason, and our special guest for this week, Ms. Adrian Farley. Y'all get out and do that damn work. We'll holler at y'all next week. Later. Stay informed, y'all. Peace.